Father, we come this morning and we, we do confess that you are sovereign in everything that you do. You are sovereign in, in having us to be created. You are sovereign in keeping us alive each day with all of your provision. You are sovereign over our souls. Father, we, we are thankful for your sovereign good pleasure that has brought your people into your kingdom in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would, we would see Christ today. We would see him more clearly, see all of his perfection, his perfections in the way he lived, that we would, we would mimic those, we would follow those by your grace, we would live more like Christ because of the word being opened today. We pray in his name. Amen. Good morning, Grace Fellowship Church. Guests. I want to encourage us with something that I believe uh, is a, a really wonderful means of grace in the life of a Christian. I was, I was in a meeting this week where the topic of fasting came up. And um, this was a, a person who's been a Christian a long time. And fasting has not been a regular part of their life. There's another member of this church who recently has been giving me testimony. They begin fasting as a more regular part of their, their walk and just uh, giving uh, testimony to the benefits of that in their lives, the humility that's brought into their lives. And, and then I was at a, a uh, pastor's gathering that I'm going to once a month of pastors throughout the Quad Cities, and one of the pastors was just espousing the, 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 the benefits of fasting in his own life. Uh, I think fasting was certainly something modeled by Jesus, something taught by Jesus to his disciples. It is certainly a practice of the church throughout the ages. Uh, in the second century, Tertullian wrote a book on Christian fasting called On Fasting. Uh, so you see throughout in the, the Reformers, you see Martin Luther, John Calvin, I'll read some quotes from them, but fasting was a, a regular part of, of the Christian life. It, it's, a, it's a practice that's seemingly, mostly, uh, at least in Reformed Baptist circles, as I can tell, um, a practice that isn't, isn't really done much. Something that we've kind of turned away from the the one of the greatest realities of of our life is the power of the flesh one of the greatest realities of the christian life is the power of the flesh that we battle the flesh um, the flesh is something that that regularly uh wells up and and the flesh is is literally fed by food literally our bodies are nourished by food. God designed us to need food. And when we don't eat, we can become lethargic and tired and uh, uh, a little less strong. And it's a wonderful time when we fast to actually experience that lack of strength, that hunger, uh, to show how, how much our flesh desires 
desires food. And one of the ways, one of the very practical ways to mortify the flesh is to not eat. And I think it's a means of grace that I would encourage every single member of this church to think about in your own life if it's something you have not done, you have not experienced. Um, my own personal testimony of fasting is literally I become much more docile. You know, the, some of the personality traits or sin, sin nature that I have of, of interrupting or being overly passionate or overly anxious or whatever it is that you might experience when i fast that changes in me um, i think i whenever i fast i i can see how how how, how we need to eat but how it, in the culture we live in it's it's so much a focus of our lives i know when i fasted in in the past when i it's been a part of my christian life for a long time and one of the things about fasting is uh if i'm in whatever day of a fast and all I can think about when I go to bed at night is the eggs and bacon I'm going to have in the morning. It's not time to be done fasting for me. Because all, I, all I'm thinking about and I'm dwelling on is, is, is that food that I so much desire. Um, there's, there's some quotes that I think would help us to, to hear from some men of the past. Hudson Taylor the missionary said to China, said, in, in Chansey, I found Chinese Christians who were accustomed to spend time in fasting and prayer. They recognized that this fasting, which so many dislike, which requires faith in God, since it makes one feel weak and poorly, is really a divinely appointed means of grace. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to our work is our own imagined strength. And in fasting, we learn what poor, weak creatures we are dependent on a meal of meat for little strength which we are so apt to lean upon. That, that we, we are in need of food, and when we're not eating, we, we can so much see that we lean heavily upon food, and it can be a time where we can lean, lean more into the Lord. John Calvin, let us say something about fasting, because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity. And some reject it as almost superfluous. Well, on the other hand, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily de degenerates into superstition. Calvin's saying, look, if you're just fasting because you are supposed to fast, as a, as a check-the-box like the Pharisees, even something to be seen, it's fairly useless. It's, it's just superstition. Nothing's really going to be benefited from that. But, he says, many don't understand how useful it is, undervalue how necessary it is, reject it as superfluous holy and legitimate fasting is directed to three ends for he practices it either as a restraint on the flesh to preserve it from licentiousness or as a preparation for prayers and pious meditations or as a testimony of our humiliation in the presence of God when we are desirous of confessing our guilt before him John Calvin would say to go before the Lord and confess sin one ought, could be fasting will take you a place of humility to confess sin before the Lord, uh, to, to humiliate ourselves, if you will, humble ourselves, to, to, to mortify the flesh. Look, I pastor, I, I live, I myself, I talk to you all. There, is, there are many fleshly desires that drive us and that can become problematic for us. And, and 
the means of grace that a fast is is, is to, to, to show us uh, show us how how much our flesh fights for what it wants. Uh, Martin Luther, of fasting I say this, it is right to fast frequently in order to subdue and control the body. For when the stomach is full, the body does not serve for preaching, for praying, or studying, or for doing anything else that is good. Under such circumstances, God's word cannot remain, but one should not fast with a view to meriting something by it as by a good work. Luther really makes a strong case in his, he says, (laughs) that a body that's full, a stomach that's full, doesn't serve for preaching or praying or studying. So uh, there is is a, a history of fasting that we don't really uh, partake much in. Uh, you know, Paul says what? I, I beat my flesh. I subdue my flesh. Race, runners run in a race. I, I subdue my flesh. I bring it under control. Um, we, have, we have a lot of idolatry of comfort in our culture, yes? We, we're very accustomed to comfort in our culture. And I can assure you that fasting will make you uncomfortable. You'll have hunger pangs. You'll think about food. You'll, 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 you'll get to, to uh, deal with even wanting to sneak a handful of something because you're so much wanting food. I'm convinced that God will not call us to something he will not sustain us through. So uh, people have... I'm, I, I'm, 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 I'm often... I don't know the right word. Amazed is too strong. I'm surprised by how many excuses people have to not fast. Uh, mostly health, 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 uh, health, and medicinal. Like I can't do it. You don't understand. I have this condition. I can't eat. If I, I mean, I have to eat. If I don't eat, this happens. Or, uh, you know, I, look. Be wise. We've talked about. I've talked to those pregnant women through the years of of fasting while they're pregnant and the wisdom of that. I'm open to all those conversations. But I am also wanting as your pastor to encourage you, all the members of this local assembly, that fasting is a means of grace that I would encourage you to partake in. And, and trust the Lord to, to minister to you through that time. And, and, and many of us, many of you, many of us in this local assembly have not, have not fasted spiritually. If a doctor tells us to fast for... 48 hours to do some tests, we're all quick to do it. I'm, I, we've all probably done that at some point, at least some of the oldest, oldest of us. If we say, hey, intermittent fast because you'll lose 20 pounds, people are quick to do it. But if the Lord says fast, <laughs> humble yourself, mortify your flesh, we're, we're not nearly as quick to do it. And I would encourage you that you're missing out on a means of grace. We're missing out on a means of grace and to make that more a part of our lives. Okay, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. We'll be in verses 31 through 33 today. If you would please stand and I will read those verses. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to me, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. You may be seated. I titled this sermon, God's Will Be Done, which I grant doesn't seem to fit very well in this text necessarily. But as I studied and considered this passage, um, this is what I see in Jesus' response to the, to the threat told him of Herod wanting him dead, to kill him. Jesus, Jesus he, he, he knew and he, he confidently lived out the reality that God's will would be done. I, I would really want us to, as we continue to go through the scriptures, read the scriptures, know Christ. It's a great opportunity to know Christ. Just watch how Christ lived, kind of like a couple of weeks ago, how Christ responded to the question if, if few would be saved. He responded to that person, those people listening to their souls and their need to be made right with God. And, and so today we're going to see Jesus responding to a threat and how he responds and and we ought to see him that we could be more like him. He, he exampled here this, this surety that God had a plan and that plan would come to fruition. And that nothing would deter him from living out his entire earthly life that God's will be done. That's what Christ came. Christ came to seek and save the lost. Christ came to live out the Father's plan, that his will would be done. That is exactly what Christ did from start to finish of his earthly life. So the text starts with these words, at that very hour. At that very hour. So we're talking about a specific time. At what hour? Well, let's look at the immediate context. Back in, starting in verse 22. He went his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. So he's traveling through Perea on his way to Jerusalem, to Judea, out, coming out of Galilee. And he's, remember, he's on purpose going towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Someone asked him, because the message he was preaching, as we'll look at more and we understand, was one of, one of not all Jews are going to heaven. You're not right with God because of your ethnicity or religion. And, and that was mind-blowing to them. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for an earthly king. And so one asks, your teaching seems like you're saying there's going to be few, few Jews that'll be, that'll be saved. And again, instead of Jesus talking about how many or how few, he simply says to them listening... Listen, you just should strive to enter. You should strive to enter. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. He said, so the guy says, will only a few be saved? And he said, you should strive to enter. And then he goes on to tell them 
how they think they will be in heaven. And when they stand before him, they will say, hey, look, you taught in our streets. You ate with us. We knew you. We knew you. And he's going to say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. And then he said, and, and where you're going to go if you don't enter through the narrow door of Jesus Christ before it's shut? kind of like the ark and that as soon as the door was shut if you don't enter before that door shut you're going to go to hell there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity and it does not matter that you're jewish it does not matter that you call yourselves sons of abraham and people come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of god and behold some are last will be first and some our first will be last. So, and you Jews, Gentiles will come from all over, north, south, east, west, and they will recline at table. So some of you are going to be in hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and you're not going to be in just because you're Jewish and not just because your parents were, were, were right with me. And there will be Gentiles. God is no respecter of persons. There is one way to enter into the kingdom of God, he tells them. And that is through me, Jesus says, the narrow door. That's the only way to enter. And this is what he's teaching. And at that very hour, this is exactly what's going out. Jesus is traveling through Perea between Galilee and Judea. He's teaching that not all Jews would be saved. He's teaching that some Gentiles would be saved. That there was only one way to get into heaven. That their religion was no good. That what the Pharisees and the, and the, and the, and the Sadducees and, the, and the, uh, the rabbis were teaching them was not the way to heaven. He's, he's preaching the kingdom of God and that it's eternal. It's not a temporary kingdom. He's not coming as the Messiah they're expecting. He's teaching them all of these things. He's teaching about salvation from the wrath of God through him. He's teaching about repentance, a change of mind concerning, concerning sin and righteousness and at that very hour he's 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 preaching to repent or perish as we just saw earlier he's preaching that god is is not a respecter of persons it doesn't matter you who think you're you're right with god because of your religion or your works you're you're not right with god those who understand they're sinners and and without any hope that's who is right with god he, he's telling them their Judaism, that, that where they thought that they were, they, were, they were right because of their ethnicity or because of their works is not the way to heaven. And at that very hour, inside of all of this teaching that's really grinding on them, really bothering them, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. So the Pharisees warned Jesus of Herod's desire to kill him. The Pharisees come to Jesus and tell him that Herod. Now, who is Herod? This is Herod Antipas. Herod is the son of Herod the Great. We'll look at in just a minute. He was one of the sons of Herod the Great. He was now the ruler over Galilee and Perea. Judea had no king, but Herod's son. And now Herod, Herod the Great, and then Herod... Antipas, this Herod, was an Idumean. He was hated by the Jews. He wasn't even Jewish. He, 
his father, Herod the Great, had been appointed king in 43 B.C. He was an Idumean. Idumeans were, by the way, descendants of Esau. Okay, so they were hated by Jews. And yet, Rome had placed an Idumean as their king. And so the king of Galilee and Perea was Herod. Now, the Pharisees, again, would not have liked him. And they come and they tell him, listen, this, this Herod, this, this, this king, he wants you dead. You better get out of Perea because he wants you dead and he has authority. So this, this was the story of Jesus' life. People wanted him dead. The, the Jewish leaders, the false kings that Rome had placed there, the, eventually all of the Jewish people, Rome, as represented by Pilate, they wanted him dead. In Matthew 2, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, now that's Herod the Great, that's Herod Antipas' father, he was, he was king over all of that area. Behold, wise men came from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is the king who has been born? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So these wise men come from outside of Israel, and they come and they say, Where is this king of the Jews that's been born? And Herod, the greatest, no, no, I'm king of the Jews. Uh, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So down to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw Herod the Great, that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. From Jesus' birth, he was wanted dead. King Herod the Great wanted him dead because... These, these people came from outside and said, we came to worship the king of the Jews. And Herod's saying, no, I'm king of the Jews. This, 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 this Messiah that you say is being born, I want him dead. So he had all of the children in Bethlehem killed. Of course, we know Joseph and Mary took him to Egypt. Then throughout Luke's gospel, we see that they want Jesus dead. Luke 4, 28, when they, that was those in the synagogue in Nazareth, where he was from when he was in the synagogue, and he had been teaching salvation for, for, for all through him. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down, off the, down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. In his own hometown, they wanted him dead. Why did they want him dead? Because he told them that they were sinners, they were poor, blind, and needy, they were, they were Old Testament, he, they were the poor and the blind that he came to preach freedom to and good news to. He was, he was destroying their, their religious system, their way to heaven, their thinking they were God's people because they were, they were Jews. He was, he was teaching salvation through him, not salvation through Judaism and religion, and they wanted him dead. John, in John's gospel, uh, hold on, uh, Luke 6, 11, but they were filled with fury 
So who's the they? Here's the scribes and the Pharisees. They're filled with fury and discuss with one another, with one another, what they might do to Jesus. We know also from Mark's gospel, the Herodians were talking. They wanted to kill him. And why did they want him dead? Because he was healing on the Sabbath. And he was, he was violating their religious laws. And he was destroying their, their thoughts of their, their, their religious okayedness. He's telling them the truth and they hate him for it. John 5. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. <laughs> Jesus was healing people on the Sabbath. And more than that, he was calling himself God's son, making himself equal with God. And that was blasphemy to these Jews. They wanted him dead. You don't get to call yourself God. Yeah, you're doing a lot of miracles. Yeah, you're doing things that only God could probably do but you're probably doing it by Elzebub. We want you dead because you are upsetting our religion. You're, you're preaching a different gospel. In John 8, he's speaking to the Jews at the Feast of the, of the Booze, and, and he's at the temple teaching. John 8, 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and have you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They wanted him dead because he was calling himself God. They were, he was telling them that he was the only way to be right with God, that all they were doing was wrong. You see, this is what many people do, but if you think about it, if you actually will engage in a discussion with Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon... And you tell them that Jesus is God, they're going to disagree with you, hate you, walk away from you. After the, at the Feast of Dedication, uh, Jesus, again, he's teaching in the temple. He's choosing, teaching that the, uh, the Jews, that, he, would, that they, then they, he was teaching them, and they would not believe that he was God's Messiah, he was God's Son. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. All of this that we're looking at happened prior to what's taking place in Luke chapter 13. All of these things, these Jews had wanted him dead. They wanted him dead because he was claiming to be God himself. He was claiming that he was the Messiah to come. He wasn't here to build an earthly kingdom. He wasn't here to make Jewish Judaism great or to make Israel great again. He was here to save sinners. Those that knew they were sinners, that repented and turned from their sins. That's what he was here for. And they, they hated him for that. They wanted him dead. John 11, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did. What had he done? He had raised Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So the Jewish religious leaders are saying, this guy, Jesus, has this huge following. He just raised him from the dead, and people are starting to believe in him. They're starting to follow him. 
And if that uprising continues, Rome's going to get angry. Rome's going to come in and take away our nation, destroy our nation, and destroy our, our position, even our safety that we have with Rome because we are, we are, we are in control. The, the, we, are, we are the religious leaders that Rome is affirming. And if, if, this, if they start following this guy, Jesus, then they're gonna, Rome's going to destroy us. So they wanted to protect their earthly comfort. They were afraid that Jesus was going to get this great following, down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, all the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead because he told them the truth. He told them they were sinners who needed to repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in God. They needed forgiveness for their sins. Luke 19, we see it again later. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The, the masses were listening to him. So the leaders of Judaism, they wanted him dead, but because he was a threat to their power, but at this point, later on, just before the crucifixion, they don't want to kill him because he's got this huge following. He was, he was taking away their, their power. He was taking away their hope in continuing to rule the Jewish people. He was taking that away from them, and they wanted him dead. When the when the Sanhedrin came to question Jesus' authority, he told them a parable of the wicked tenants who killed the owner's son after killing the, the messengers that he sent, killed the owner's son when he came to get some of the fruit. And the scribe, verse 19, the scribe and the chief priest sought to lay hands on him at the very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Again, the Jewish leaders wanted him dead. Just like, just like Herod the Great wanted him dead. Just like Herod Antipas reportedly wanted him dead. Now again, whether or not Herod Antipas actually said that he wanted him dead, these Pharisees came and told him that. To think the Pharisees are really concerned for his well-being when they've wanted him dead this whole time doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, the Pharisees here in Perea were not the same ones up in Galilee, weren't the same ones in Judea, but, but they talked. So these Pharisees say, they tell him, Herod wants you dead. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, uh, but they wanted him destroyed. So at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, get away from here, Herod wants to kill you. When, when, Herod, when Herod Antipas finally sees Jesus, it's in Jerusalem the night before his crucifixion. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. Remember, Herod Antipas was the king over Galilee and Perea. Jesus was from Galilee. So when he had been brought before Pilate by Judas, and by when Judas had betrayed him, he was brought before Pilate, and Pilate said, look, go to Herod, because Herod, he's, he's your king. You're under his jurisdiction. So they sent him to Herod, who was himself at Jerusalem. He was in Jerusalem because he was there for the Passover. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. 
So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. So Jesus, so he finally gets to see Jesus. He's asking him a bunch of questions. And actually, what he wants to do is he wants to see some sign done by him. He wanted to see some of the tricks, some of the shows, some of the things he had heard about. He didn't really want to hear his message. He just wanted to see some tricks. And so he questioned him, and Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So when Herod finally gets in front of Jesus, he doesn't, doesn't judge him guilty, doesn't put him to death, doesn't have him put to death. He simply sends him back to Pilate. Herod was a, a really spineless man. He was really no threat at all to Jesus, as we see there. But these Pharisees now in Perea come and tell Jesus, after all of this teaching, at that very time when he's teaching all these things they hate, hey, Herod wants to kill you. You better get out of here. Here's Jesus' response that shows that Herod was no threat to him. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Go and tell that fox. Now, that fox would be a very derogatory term. A fox uh, was, was pesky. Foxes were problematic. But foxes cannot harm a human. Foxes are like rodents. They're like vermin. They're, they're, they're not dangerous. And he's telling you, go tell this, this pest, this pesky Herod, Antipas, the one who would put John the Baptist to death. You tell, you tell that pesky little vermin, you go tell him this. He, that word tells him he has no power, he has no authority, he's not going to kill anybody. No respect for the man. By the way, Jesus calling him a fox or calling people a, a brood of vipers or calling Peter Satan. Look, again, when Christ's heart is perfect there is no sin but but there's nothing wrong with calling a fox a fox somebody who thinks they can who's just a pest but really has no authority and really can't do anything to you so he said to them go and tell that fox behold remember that that word behold it means listen up Remember we talked about that last week or a few weeks ago. It's like a highlighter. It's like an underline. Listen up. You go tell that fox, that pest, that vermin, you go tell him, listen up. I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. You go tell that pesky vermin that, that, that he that can do nothing to stop God's plan Nothing to stop my purposeful journey. You go tell him, and this was a colloquialism, I'm going to do something day one, day two, and the third day until I'm finished. It wasn't like it was going to be three days. We're far from three days from when he goes to the cross. But he's saying, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Today, tomorrow, and until I'm done. Jesus is basically telling the Pharisees to tell that fox, I'll make it to Jerusalem. He said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. I cast out. Now, the word ekbalo, that's not that important. It means throw out, drive out, cast out. But what is important is that there's a verb there that's in the present active indicative. 
So it's, a, it's an ongoing action that's going to continue. And it's an indicative. It's a matter of fact. So what he's saying to them is, go tell that fox, I am going to ongoingly cast out demons. It's going to keep happening until it's finished. And there's nothing you can do about it. And perform cures. Again, the word for perform there is apoteleo, to complete, to finish, to end, to accomplish. Again, the important part is it's a present active indicative. It's an action that's going to continue as a matter of fact. His threat means nothing to me, is what he's saying to go tell him. I am going to continue to do what God has sent me to do, and there's nothing he can do about it. It's going to happen. Cures today and tomorrow, and the third day, I finish my course, and it's going to continue until I finish. To attain a state as a goal. Until I reach my goal, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, and I'm not going to run from Perea because you tell me Herod wants to kill me. You go tell that fox, I'm just going to keep doing God's will. His will be done, and you can't do anything about it. Until I reach my goal, you tell that fox, listen up, I will continue to cast out demons. I will continue to perform cures until I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must, verse 33, day, I must, that word, we've looked at it before, it is necessary, it is a must, uh, to have to, implying inevitability, often as the plan of God. So that word, he says, when I must, it's inevitable. This has to happen. It is necessary that I go on my way today, that I keep doing what I'm doing today and tomorrow and the day following. This is God's plan. I will continue on my journey doing God's will until I reach Jerusalem and the cross of Calvary. This is the will of God, and nothing can thwart it. Certainly not this cowardly fake king, this Edomian fake king, that fox. There's nothing he can do about it. You let him know. I am, I am so encouraged and so in awe of and in love with my king who acts this way, who is so set in trusting in God's plan is so set of knowing the outcome of his life that he does not back down, he does not step off, he comes right at and says, tell this fox he ain't going to do anything. He's just a pest. A pesky little vermin. Nothing he can do to me. I, I must. I must. There's a plan for my life and I must get to Jerusalem. That's where I'm going. Remember, back in Luke 9, he set his face, where? Toward Jerusalem. That's where he's going. And until he gets to Jerusalem, until he gets across at Calvary, nothing's going to change that. And, and, and he lives consistently with that all the way into the garden when he says, not my will, but your will be done. What we have is an example of Jesus living God's plan for his life, trusting that's going to come to fruition, and he just simply keeps doing what God sent him to do. 
that's who we ought to be. Just keep doing what God sent us to do. Now, we don't have a marked out plan that we know the day we're going to die and how. But we, but we do have things that God's called us to do. And we can look to Christ and see when he was threatened by, by this pesky little vermin who could do nothing about it, he trusted in God's plan and just kept journeying towards Jerusalem. God's will was that Jesus would die at the Passover at Jerusalem at a predetermined date, and he was headed there. And the threat from Herod did not impress him, or the fake threat that the Pharisees were bringing that didn't even happen. Either way, the message is, I'm not, I'm not hurrying, I'm not running, I'm not scattering, I'm going to keep doing what God sent me to do. John 2, 4, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Early on, the wedding in Cana, when, when Mary says there's no wine, he knew it wasn't time to reveal his deity to be crucified. It's, it wasn't his will. His hour hadn't come. John 7, 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So he's in Jerusalem here at the temple of the Feast of Booze, but it was not yet time. He has not finished what he had to do. John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Again, God had a plan, a predetermined, predestined plan, and nothing could change that. And Jesus continued casting out demons, performing cures, preaching repentance and salvation as he was journeying. He was journeying with a purpose, and he just kept to that. John 13, 1. Now, the, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, in John 13, we see that Jesus, this is the night before he's crucified, and he now knows his time has come. It was, it was, it was the night before he was going to die, and, and he, had, he had continued on from Perea when he was threatened by the Pharisees that Herod wanted him dead and continued to do what he was sent to do all the way up until this moment when he knew it was his time. John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Father, the hour has come. So Jesus knew God's will for his earthly life, and he completely trusted in it. And he let the Pharisees in Perea, in Herod's jurisdiction, he let them know that no one could thwart God's plan. No one can thwart God's plan. We'll get to this in a little bit, but what is God's plan for my life? Well, to bring him glory, to proclaim the gospel, to live the gospel and speak the gospel. This is his plan for my life, to, to love my son enough not to affirm his lifestyle. Even if I'm threatened by people. You know, to, to, uh, the, will, the will of God for all of our lives is to, is to stand in the truth of gender and marriage, even if we're threatened. We don't know how it's going to end, but we know that's God's plan, and we'll trust Him, and we will not be thwarted by some pesky little vermin who can't really do anything to us. This plan for Him to die in Jerusalem 
at the hands of the Sanhedrin. He told this to the disciples around a year earlier in Matthew 16, 13. Now, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do you people say that a son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter, that faith that you're, that faith that you're, you're expressing, that's what I'm going to build the foundation of the church on. You're going you're to have the keys to the kingdom. You're going to be my disciples. You're going to spread this good news. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, but don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ yet. It's not time. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, he started to tell them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin's going, I'm going to suffer many things from the, from the Sanhedrin. I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to rise on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I'm not going to let that happen, Peter says. Herod Antipas says, He's going to kill you. Peter says, No, I'm not going to let that happen. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you have a different plan. You want me to be an earthly king. I just told you who I am. You just told me who, you, who I am because God revealed that to you. And now all of a sudden you're wanting to change the plan. You're not going to stop it. You can't thwart it. Peter, you cannot thwart God's will. It will be done. Herod the Great, the, those in the Nazareth synagogue, the, the Pharisees, Peter, Herod Antipas, no one could thwart God's plan. And Jesus was resolved and believed and lived his life knowing that regardless of who said what or did what. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to divine plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. For Jesus to die in Jerusalem at Calvary at the hands of lawless men was God's will, definite plan, from before time began, and nothing was going to stop it. And Jesus knew that. So threats didn't mean anything to him. Threats carried no weight. What is your destiny, Kathy? Glory. When's it going to happen? You don't know. Might you be threatened in between here and there? You don't care. God's will for your life is that you tell the truth, that you glorify Him. That you, that you proclaim the gospel to those that will even hate you because of it. 
when the early church, they're, they're praying for boldness in Jerusalem. Remember, they're praying for boldness after, after Peter and John are brought before the leadership. He said, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servants, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate were, were gathered together against Jesus. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand, God, and your plan, God, had predestined to take place. God's will be done. Jesus knew this, and he lived like it. Oh, that I would live like it. That I simply believed God's promises, believed God's plan for my life, which includes persecution and hatred, by the way, I actually believed that, trusted him, and didn't listen to the threats. First Peter 1.20, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Revelation 13.8, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written in the foundation of the world, in the book of life, of the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of all types of people, all the elect, predestined before the foundation of the world to be slain. And Jesus is in Perea being told by these Pharisees who hated him, Herod wants to kill you, you better flee. And he said, you tell that fox, you tell that vermin, you tell that pest, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and I'm going to make it to Jerusalem. I'm going to die at Calvary. That's God's plan. God's plan to crush his son, determined before the foundation of the world, and nothing could change God's will. We are not Jesus, but we are to be like Jesus. Look and see right here. Look and see Christ. Look and see his, the way he reacts to these threats. He knew he was going to be crushed. He knew he was going to die at Calvary. He knew Herod, Herod Antipas would have nothing, to, well, a little to do with it, and he would turn him back to Pilate. He wasn't afraid of these threats from the Pharisees or from Herod Antipas. He wasn't afraid when it wasn't yet his time. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong the days, his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the will of the Father to crush his son, to redeem his people. Jesus knew that what he, what, that's what he had come for. And, and, and throughout, from the time he was born, he was hated, and they wanted him dead. And as he started doing ministry, the last three years of his life, he was more hated, and they wanted him dead. They liked the goodies he gave, but they didn't like the message he he brought. And he's promised us the same. He's promised us the same. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they believe me, they'll believe you. But all things that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. When you proclaim the gospel to people, when they hear the truth, they might hate you for it, but they no longer have an excuse for their sin. They've been told. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Look, be encouraged. When we are hated and threatened, we can know God's will will be done. And his will for us is to be hated for the truth, hated for the gospel. Hated because of our faith. Acts 14, 4, 18 through 20. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. Brother Tony, a couple of times, maybe some others, have actually gone before some, some sort of a judge or magistrate to face charges because of the gospel. And well, at his trial he proclaimed the gospel. Look, we're in situations that aren't that, but we're in situations where we are told you're going to stop talking about Jesus. If you're going to talk about Jesus at the family gathering, you're not invited. If you're going to speak against homosexuality with the gay cousin and, and friend, at the Thanksgiving meal, you're not invited. But you're welcome to come as long as you don't speak of Jesus. As long as you don't talk to us about our sin, you're welcome to come. But the minute you do that, you're no longer welcome to come here. What are we to do? Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than God, you must judge. We cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. God's will for their lives, and they trusted in that, didn't they? They trusted that all the way to death, did Peter and the apostles. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as, some, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. But let no one, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in, that, in the name. Look, if you suffer for your sin, you're no different than anybody else. If you suffer for your, your actions... As a Christian, if you go out there and you offend people or you or you or you murderous or you're a thief or you're an evildoer, you're a meddler, and people hate you for it, that's not to your credit. But if you suffer as a Christian, you're blessed. And it's promised to you. Rejoice. This is the truth. Do we believe it? Are we ready to follow Christ and not be deterred by man's threats? 
it's in our lives now. I would call it at a very minor level, but it's, I believe it's coming. And it may or may not, but we should be ready, shouldn't we? Right now, it's just not being invited to the Thanksgiving party of the, the family or friends you used to go to those things with. But soon it might be jail. Soon it might be death. Threats are coming. They're already here. We can look to Jesus and see what he did when he was threatened. God's will be done. You're just a pest. You're just a vermin. You can't do anything to me. Fear not him who could take your life, but fear him who can kill your body and kill your soul. God's will be done. Look to Christ as an example of how he interacted with these threats. First, or 2 Timothy 3.12. Look at, look at Paul's words to Timothy, and by extension, it's God's words to us. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some of us, we, we go to passages like this as we have in the past, and we stop and think, am I even being persecuted? And what, am I supposed to go out and make sure I be persecuted? God says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be threatened. You will be told to bow down to the idolatry of man and kindness and getting along. Look, uh, God's will be done, I'm going to wear the t-shirt. God's will be done, I'm not going to put that on my my email. God's will be done. I won't stick that sticker on my cop car. Threaten me how you will. The part of me is I'm, 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 I'm hopeful in standing in this pulpit and preaching God's word will become a crime in this country. And you can come visit me in jail. And God give me the, the courage to say God's will be done. Your threats don't scare me. And let me look to Christ who did this very thing and said, your threats don't scare me. I'm headed somewhere. And I have a job to do. Paul says in Philippians 3, now that I, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. What was behind Paul when he's writing this? Towards the end of his life. Imprisonment. Beatings. Famine. Cold. Threats. I forget those things. I forget what lies behind. And straining forward what lies ahead. What lies ahead? My head's going to be chopped off. I'm sitting in a Roman prison. And I forget that too. I forget that too. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you can think you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Even today, God might be revealing to you, to me, to us, that when threats come, God's will be done. We won't be threatened by these pesky vermin. Even if their name is president, 
Even if their name is mayor or governor, even if their mayor is teacher or, or neighbor or son or daughter or aunt or uncle or grandma or grandpa, even if that's their name. God's will is that we live as Christ for Christ's sake. To live is Christ. To die is gain. How did Christ live? On purpose. What did he do with threats? They didn't bother him. God's will for our lives is that good news goes forth via our lives and our mouths. And like Jesus, we will not be deterred because of man's threats into our lives. At the very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die there. Nothing's going to happen between now and then. You tell Herod, he's got nothing on me. He can do nothing to me. Closing thought. Jesus lived as a man who would not be deterred by man's threats, instead would trust in God's sovereign will for his life. He knew God's will for his life was the cross of Calvary in Jerusalem. May we live with this same resolve as to God's will being done in our lives, and by his grace and for his glory, we will not be moved by man's threats towards us. They're coming. And in every one of our lives, I could name it to a person, they're already here. You're already being threatened for your faith in some relationships, in some places. Don't be deterred. Look to Christ. Be like Christ. Look at the example he gives us. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for Christ and him being so clearly seen. His life being shown to us, his words, his responses to the world around him. And Father, well, we are not, we are not Christ, we are Christians. And we have been given a job and we've been saved to bring you glory. And bringing you glory, Father, will, be, will bring persecution, hatred, threats. Help us to be resolved that your will would be done including any, any trials, any persecutions, any physical or emotional persecution placed upon us. Father, help us to see Christ and live for his glory by his power. Amen. Let's stand and sing hymn 353, O Church, Arise. 353, O Church, Arise.